You're listening to the New Life Podcast. We're one church in multiple locations based out of Aberdeen, South Dakota. We hope this message helps the gospel come alive for you and gives you an opportunity to encounter Jesus in a whole new way. For more info on New Life, you can check out our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Let's get ready to listen to today's message. All right, so here we go. We've been in this whole faith series. I think I told you last week, we're ending the Old Testament, and obviously because it's Christmas, we're getting into the New Testament. With two weeks left to go, Heroes of the Faith, uh, we find ourselves today with a very unlikely couple to really even make the pages of Scripture. Uh, They are humble to the core. They are very unlikely, like I just said, very unlikely suspects to even enter into the pages of Scripture. But of course, God has a plan for their life, And God has a plan, even more importantly, for their son's life, and his name is John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, if you're familiar, is an interesting character in Scripture. I think I just hit puberty. You hear my voice change right there? (laughs) It's not just my kids going through puberty. I'm going through puberty. Scripture. And we all know kind of about John the Baptist, but what we don't know are the more obscure people in the text his mom and dad. Maybe you've even felt like that as a parent, that your kids just consume a lot more energy and attention than you do, and you feel like, does anyone, maybe this is just me venting from the pulpit, you feel like you're doing all the work, and they are living the life that's probably the easiest stage of their life, even though they're constantly complaining about how life, hard their life is. And, uh, and, and you're not really getting any of the credit uh, and, that, and that's kind of what this looks like. They, they just get a, a little bit of airtime, but in that airtime, really everything changes, and they, they are an absolute godly couple in Scripture. And so today we're going to talk about Liz and Zach, or Elizabeth and Zachariah, the parents of John the Baptist, and the faith that they displayed in the process of waiting. If you're anything like me, I know I say this a lot, you hate the waiting process. And what's beautiful about this text, what's beautiful about their story, their narrative, is that they don't just wait, they do something different than my, myself, they wait patiently. They wait in a way that's godly, they wait in a way where Christ is absolutely exalted, and all of this is setting the stage next week for Christ to enter into the scene. And so these people are related to Jesus, aunt and uncle, because John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. And so long before John ever arrives on the scene, the Old Testament we've been going through for the last you know, six, seven weeks now, has shown us that there's a time coming where there's going to be a man who prepares the way for the Lord. And so 400 years before Christ, the book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, prophesies about John the Baptist, about the narrative that we arrive at today when it says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me and the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. 400 years of silence. And how long did they think this process would take? 400 years of silence, and they're probably getting a little frustrated themselves with this process of waiting and not waiting patiently because as Jesus arrives on the scene, everyone is more than ready for someone to come save them from their physical plight. They don't know it's Jesus. They don't see it happening the way Jesus saves, but they're more than ready, and now this person jumps on the scene, John the Baptist, And his life is anything but pretty. His life is absolutely messy. And it starts with mom and dad. And so we're going to walk through this story together of waiting patiently for their son. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, 
There was a priest named Zechariah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And check this out, this is critical. They were both righteous before God. They both walked blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Here's what you need to know. Did a little research for you this morning. They were incredibly insignificant. In fact, I think it'd be fair to say Culturally, they were nobodies. She comes from the line of Aaron, so she comes from a ministry family. She has a great name, it means God's oath. His name means the Lord remembers, which is prophetic. And what they both had in common, which is incredibly uncommon, is the Bible said that they were walking blamelessly before the Lord. Now remember, in the Old Testament, to follow all the laws, to follow all the statutes, there's 600 plus commandments. How many of you have struggled with the top 10, right? They're following all of these things. They, they really are an anomaly. They're, they are not normal. And even though they're not normal, no one really knows who they are. We know that Zechariah is a priest, and that sounds like a big deal, does it not? Uh, and you could probably kind of translate that in modern terms to pastor, pastor of a synagogue. But we also know that he's from the middle of nowhere, which means he's pastoring a church from a community size of around 50 to 100 and probably a congregation size of around 20 to 30. And so Zechariah looks very South Dakotan. He's in a rural area, middle of nowhere, pastoring a small church, just grinding it out day after day after day. And he's got this faithful ministry partner with him, Elizabeth, and they're just following the Lord and they're trusting in him for everything that they have. And the Bible doesn't say how old they are, but it says that they're advanced in years. And so we don't know. We just know that it's kind of past that point biologically where they should ever have a child. And so year after year after year after year after year, they go to the Lord. They say, Lord, give us a child. Lord, give us a child. You, you see that we're following you faithfully. faithfully. We, you see that we're pastoring this church faithfully. You see that we love you with all of our hearts. You see that we're humble and we're obedient and they're looking at the Lord, and they're saying, God, when is it gonna be time? And now they're at this ministry stage where they've probably just given up hope on that pipe dream. Because by earthly standards, there's no way that they're ever gonna have this child. Emotionally, this would have been really tough. But what we don't understand culturally is that physically, this would have been devastated. Financially, this would have been devastating because there was no social security 2,000 years ago. If you did not have a legacy that lived past you, specifically with men, then you were in real trouble. And so culturally going on around them, there was also this idea, specifically with the women and Elizabeth, and you're gonna hear this at the end of the text, so I'm gonna give a bit of a spoiler alert. There was this idea that there was sin in the camp if you couldn't have a child. And so she's dealing with the weight of all of those expectations as well, but the Bible says that they're barren. And look at verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot, or maybe you can just think in terms of lottery, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside of the hour of incense. Here's what's going on. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of priests would have existed. That's why I'm saying he wasn't a big deal. Lots of small communities, synagogues coming together, 
for this two-week event or a week event twice a year where 24 divisions were gonna cover this entire region and they would come together to the big temple twice a year. And when they would do that, when they would go to Jerusalem, they would have this once-in-a-lifetime possible experience by lottery where their name would be picked and every year, year after year after year, Zach has been going to the temple two times a year, rolling the dice, and finally his number is called for the job where he gets to go into the temple, not to the Holy of Holies because that was for the high priest, but he get to go into the temple. And once you got this opportunity, it would never happen again. So this was literally, have you ever heard of the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Zechariah. His number is called, he's gonna, he's gonna burn the incense, and he's gonna say the prayers, and his prayers probably would have looked like, because they were under so much tyr- tyranny with Herod, you know, God, deliver us, send us the Messiah, uh, rescue us from our difficult situation. I don't know exactly what he is going to pray, but when he gets in this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity as a pastor of a rural church where he gets called up to the big church, Everything in his world gets rocked because what he's at least expecting is now about to happen because it's on God's timing. And look at what an angel of the Lord says to Zechariah. Verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, he said, Zechariah, do not be afraid. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He'll be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I would just like you to do something because there is a theological undertone to this that is really important that we're gonna hit on in just a second. I want you to underline this if you have your Bibles open in verse 15. He's never to take wine or fermented drink. Underline that if you want to, but underline this for sure. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even, underline this, even before he is what? Are you reading it? Let's read that together. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. We'll get to that in a second. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. John's name actually means God is gracious. And this whole idea of angels coming, it really isn't that unique. In the, in the book of Luke, it happens 23 times. Although when you get Gabriel, that's kind of a big deal in and of itself. And these angels are sending messages, they're ministering to people, and he says, you're gonna have a boy and he'll be great, uh, bring great joy and gladness before the Lord. That's important. How is John gonna bring Great joy and gladness. How is John gonna be great? He's gonna be great before the Lord. That does not mean that he's gonna look great to everyone around him. In fact, he's gonna look so ungreat that at a certain point in his life, he's gonna get his head chopped off. He's not gonna be great before the earthly king who has his head taken from him. He's not gonna have a status that any of us would really want. He's not gonna have a tire that any of us would want to wear. He's not gonna have a diet that any of us would wanna follow. He's alone in the wilderness. But then the Lord says about this man, he is going to be great. He's not gonna have wealth, he's not gonna have status, he's not gonna have nice clothing, he's not gonna have a comfortable life. You can check all those boxes, your best life now. You can throw them in the trash because that's not John's story. His story is, it's my best life now, but only because God's using me, not because of everyone else around me thinking how great my life is. His life stunk 
on an earthly level. The application is this, your life can be great if it's what God has called you to do. He's great before not man, he's great before the Lord. And here's what's so cool about this story, you guys. All of this is happening before he was ever born. There's this great philosophical argument that really has been answered by science more more than it hasn't at this point. We know a lot more than we used to about what the womb looks like. But the Bible is so crystal clear about his story that John was formed not after, you know, after birth, John was formed in the womb. John's purposes and plans for his life were in the womb, in his mother's womb. He was filled with the spirit in his mother's womb. John had a promise of his, on his life that he was gonna be the forerunner for Christ and it was long before his mom ever gave birth. It was all formulated in the womb. John is made in the image and likeness of God in his mother's womb. Now hear me say this and everyone look at me so we're just all walking this together. Life begins in the womb. That's not a political statement. That's a godly biblical statement in a world of genocide 2,000 years later that's taking place in the womb. Life begins in the womb. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? This is kind of a, a, a mind bender, really. He's had all this faith for all these years. He's old now. Finally gets his big moment. He doesn't see it coming. And now he has this little slip up of a lack of faith in the biggest moment of his life. Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? And he states the obvious, for I'm an old man. Can you imagine God looking at him going, really? Right? I didn't know that. You look pretty young. You've been lifting, right? You, look, you don't look bad. For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And I would say as a husband, be careful with that statement. My wife is advanced in years, and the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words. I'm going to shut your mouth until this baby is born, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, right? They're all outside of the temple. They're praying their own prayers. He's doing the incense thing. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he'd seen a vision in the temple. They know that something's different about this narrative. And he kept making signs to them and remaining mute. Like the first sign language, we don't really know. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. He's been asking for a son year after year after year. He finally gets the news. He's been praying these prayers of faith. And then he has this huge moment. Have you guys ever been in a huge moment? Psychologists, sociologists say you get seven or eight in your whole life. Marriage is one. Having kids is one. Maybe that huge promotion is one. You get like seven or eight moments in your whole life. He is in within the seventh of eight moment context, but this is clearly number one. And he finally gets called up to the big leagues. He finally gets that moment with the angel. He gets the news that he never, I guess, thought he was going to get. And he just kind of wastes it down his leg. And God is going, what are you doing? I mean, can we be critical of him and, and, and just assume that we wouldn't already be in the same exact situation if we were him? And so his response is, I'm just going to have you stop talking for a while. This maybe was even a blessing to his wife, Elizabeth. 
Maybe because he was a pastor, not me, but him, maybe he talked too much. I know this one couple that I'm, I'm close to, and when this guy gets excited or nervous, he always starts over-talking. And this person, his significant person with him in his life, always says to him, stop talking, you talk too much, right? I don't, I don't know exactly what that looked like, uh, but Zachariah can't talk. And so then it concludes like this. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, check this out, this is an interesting phrase, to take away my reproach among people. Here's what the word reproach actually translates as. It's disgrace or, in better terms, a lack of grace on her life. Remember what I told you a few minutes ago about what would have been happening culturally? The women would have gathered at the well each day. Uh, just like now, people talk, narratives are formed, opinions are, are crafted in her life, and there's a judgment that stands over her that would have been absolutely repulsive. And so she is saying, man, not only did I want this child, not only did I have this dream and preferred vision for my own future, and now it, as an older woman, it's finally come to pass, it's not just the child that I wanted, it's the shame that I never wanted to deal with, and now people will see that I'm favored by God. Shame and reproach, this has been, they potentially could have been going on for 50 years in her life, we don't know. Small town politics. Who, who in here is from a town smaller than the metropolis of Aberdeen? Welcome, all right? I had never been in a town this size uh, besides Bible college until I moved here. It turns out it's way different. Right? There's a lot of drama in these small settings. This is 50 to 100. You don't just know everyone. You know what everyone ate for breakfast. You know all the drama, there's nothing to do but talk about people in these small environments. And Elizabeth was wronged even though she'd done nothing wrong and she has this reproach and this shame on her life and she says, finally the Lord's lifting that from me and I'm gonna have this son. These guys have great faith. They're so obedient to the Lord's plan for their life and so I just want us to walk in a few things before we leave this place together. The first one is this that God gives the most faith. And I know that this isn't an always statement, but it tends to be true in scripture. God gives the most faith to the least significant. God loves using humble people. He gets all the glory when he uses those people that no one saw it coming. God gives the most faith to the least significant. What's beautiful about the gospel is that it does something that should give us all hope this Christmas. It rewrites the rules and it redefines success. It's not by accident that Jesus was chosen, or not chosen, he's God, right? He's the son of God. That Jesus himself with God and the Holy Spirit chose the way that he enters into humanity this Christmas in an incredibly humble fashion with a teenage pregnancy, with everyone chattering just like with Elizabeth, and to a manger, it's humble. God chooses, God chooses and gives the most faith to the least significant people in the narrative over and over and over and over again in the Bible. Where people look around and say, that has to be God because there's no way they could have pulled that off. 
Zechariah is finally in this huge temple in this huge moment. He's been pastoring, counseling, dealing with people's drama, living in a small town, not knowing where his next meal's coming from. He's been grinding away at ministry faithfully. No one knows who this guy is. He's just doing it all for the Lord. He is a humble servant of God. He is absolutely at his core insignificant. And all we want in our own flesh, correct me if I'm wrong, look at me, all we want in our flesh is a seat at the table, isn't it? Has there ever been a time in history where we've wanted more recognition through all sorts of virtual means ever? And one of the problems with social media is that we're not all wired to have a platform and now everyone has a platform. And when you're not wired to have a platform or you haven't earned your platform, your platform becomes a train wreck, but that's a whole other topic. These people have been faithful to God. They are nobodies and God is saying, I'm gonna take the nobodies and I'm gonna make their story somebody because I'm gonna get the glory in this situation. This is the channel that I'm gonna use. He gives the most faith to the least significant and it's not a one and done deal. He does this over and over again in scripture and he still does it today. Someone came to my mind when I was thinking about this, this idea. Uh, I was at a funeral. Pastor Gary at First Assembly passed away not too long ago and, and all the pastors went. He was a real pillar in our community. Loves Jesus. He, was, he, he led our, our pastor's group, uh, meeting once a month. And so I was at that funeral and, and there was a lot of people from ministry there. And there was this guy that I hadn't seen in a long time. He's in his 60s. His name's Dan. And when I was, I was at a very humble Bible college 20 years ago that uh, is kind of a dot on the map in a lot of ways as far as numerically how big it is. But I remember this guy, he was just such a godly man who at that time I knew him, but then over the years I got to know him more. And for a season, he actually went to new life before he started pastoring again. And I ran into this funeral and uh, I just remember him as the guy that was kind of in charge. I don't even remember exactly what his title was. There's a few people from Trinity here that could probably tell me, but, but it doesn't really matter. And, and then he kind of retired or, or whatever. And, and then I saw him again one day at Menards. And I thought, Dan, what are you doing at Menards? He said, well, I'm just kind of in between things right now. And uh, then I, started, I knew some other college students that were at Menards. In fact, uh, that really got close to him. And then his time at Menards, he was telling me at this funeral, it was like he became the chaplain of Menards. In fact, Greg's brother-in-law uh, actually would attribute, and he's in Bismarck now, a pivotal part of his spiritual development at Menards because he met this guy, Dan. And then I ran into Dan again. He says, I'm at Menards, but then God's called me to this very tiny church outside of Aberdeen, so I'm not gonna be going to New Life anymore because I'm gonna be a pastor. And I said, okay, that's your sin, but whatever you wanna do. And so, and so he started going there with his wife, and obviously, I mean, they're there week after week. And then I ran him to this funeral, long story short, and I had this moment with him where he hugged me. I remember I took a picture with him. I just thought, I gotta take a picture with Dan uh, and send it to a friend of mine who went to Trinity as well. And he said, he said to me this, he goes, and he's in his 60s, maybe even later 60s now. He says, I, I just want to sit down and have some coffee with you. And I want to have some time with you where we can talk about what it looks like to reach the community I'm in for Christ at this church part time. And the reason I love that story is a lot of people in his stage hit cruise control and they get, they get to the pulpit and they, they recirculate those sermons that they've had year after year but their whole goal is to kind of be taken care of in ministry and to cruise out of it. And he's going, I want to reach my entire small community for Christ. And it seems like New Life's doing some good things. I love New Life. And you were a student of mine, so you owe me, right? You need to 
probably pay for the lunch that we're gonna have. And would you just sit down with me and talk about what it looks like to reach my community for Christ? And I, it stuck with me. I told a few pastors about that. I said, that's what, it, I Greg was with me. I said, this is what it looks like when someone loves Jesus and serves him faithfully with 20 people, 50 people, 1,000 people, whatever it is, he gets it. And those things that seem seemingly insignificant, God uses those people and those moments for things that we can't even imagine. And God uses this man. Doesn't even know I was gonna talk about him in church. How humble it is to be a faithful servant of the Lord. You never know what God's gonna do. The second thought is this, and this is the one that really actually is the reason I'm preaching this topic, this couple, this sermon. Because we're gonna be going somewhere at the end of January. We're starting to formulate plans now for a sermon series that I'll get to in a little bit. But I'm gonna give you a little teaser for the idea of it right now. Waiting, here's the thought. Waiting is the Christmas gift that nobody wants to open. You know Trent that plays the guitar and sings? I was getting his, uh, my hair cut, or there's less hair than there used to be. I was getting my hair cut by his wife two weeks ago. I go there religiously once a month because every fifth haircut, I get a 50% discount. <laughs> and I'm truly a South Dakotan, so I save money now. But uh, I was getting my hair cut, and she was telling me the story of their daughter and uh, their son. Their daughter is in kindergarten. She goes to Aberdeen Christian. She goes, you're not going to believe what my daughter did. And I said, try me. And she goes, I caught her opening Christmas gifts behind the tree. <laughs> and I said, that is shocking because my kids would never have done that. <laughs> she says, yes, but since she confessed to me, it wasn't her gift. It was for Odin, our little, uh, our young, you know, toddler. And so she didn't, she says she didn't open any gifts for herself. She wanted to see what Odin got. And, um, and so we spent some time in prayer for her daughter, but... Uh, but, it, but have you ever done that? Have you ever opened a Christmas gift early and then wrapped it back up? Anybody? No? Okay. Downtown, right? I, I might have done that one or two or 20 times. I, I can't remember. But she said that she did that, and, I, and it brought to mind this just idea about waiting and how, and how hard it is. Based on your personality, waiting is, is the worst. Waiting is torturous, is it not? I hate Waiting. I've never waited patiently. I've never even driven the speed limit, ever, ever. <laughs> I hate the process of waiting. And so this idea is this, that waiting is the Christmas gift that nobody wants to open. And the idea is that waiting is, in fact, a gift from God, that God is using the process of waiting in our lives to mold us into something that he wants us to become and to draw us closer to him. But the idea in the sermon series that we're gonna go through in January and it's gonna affect quite a bit of us, I think it's gonna be a great time for us to walk through some key things in church, is this, is that the process of waiting, the process of expecting can be, depending on what it is, it is for Elizabeth and her husband, it is a form of trauma in their life. And so I'm joking around, but now I'm gonna get real serious, so stay with me. That this is traumatic, if we went around the room right now and talked about who in here's had a miscarriage, there would be a lot of hands that would go up. If we went around the room in church and downtown and we said, who in here really wanted to have a kid and they were trying and trying and trying and it didn't happen and that was a traumatic experience in your life, there would be hands that would indefinitely go up. But at the same time, waiting is the Christmas gift that nobody wants to open. 
I had, I had this thought that I want you to hear. Wanting something you don't get over an extended period of time can affect how you process feelings and even how you handle core relationships. It can mold and shift the way that you think when you don't get something you think God wants to do in your life. Maybe it's singleness, maybe it's being barren, or, or maybe, you know, it could be a, a slew of things in your life. This is a form of trauma in their life. Defining trauma is this, a key event or milestone in your life that is missed or that even Satan interrupts. It could take the face of death or divorce or your kids' struggles, drugs, alcohol, core friendships, illness, you know, whatever the, whatever the scenario. And what I want to also tell you as a teaser into late January, just remember it's not even Christmas, we're going into late January, is this, when we talk about trauma in church, hear me say this, this is worth the price of admission, write it down, we're gonna walk in it in a month. That trauma does two things, and it does two things in every person's life if they don't cope according to following Jesus in the midst of their hardship. It does two things, and you see it manifest in this text, which is why I'm bringing it up. It either has, allows you to run to or from relationships as a way to cope. And so the first one we would define as codependency. It's the more common one, specifically, not to be sexist, in my experience among women. And so for example, you have a trauma, you have a broken relationship, and so what you do, even not knowing it, is you attach yourself to unhealthy people as a functional savior in your life, and you go from relationship to relationship to relationship, and you don't realize that the most sacred relationship's broken in your life, which is God, and you keep looking for someone to be God in your life, and maybe you've walked through that, and you've realized, does it work, yes or no? No, it's a train wreck, right? That's the most common, that's not the one I see here. Here's the other thing, and you see it in the life of Zechariah. You either run to codependency, or you shut off everyone from your life, or you shut off those things that are so hurtful that you numb yourself to, and you push away ideas and people in your life because they've been traumatized, uh, traumatizing, and you kind of just shut down. This is the other thing that people can do. You realize that no one can be trusted, that nothing can be trusted, so in your trauma, you run from those things that God's called you to. In essence, you shut down. Now, the only reason I bring that up in, in, in the now and, and not just in late January is because this is what I think is happening, and I'm just reading between the lines, I think this is happening in the life of Zechariah. They have this deep, unmet desire year after year after year, and it's traumatizing. For Elizabeth, the trauma is shame and rejection and loneliness. For Zechariah, it's I have this idea of these things that can happen, and even the trauma of prayer. The trauma of prayer in his life is I've been praying for these things. Why won't they happen? And so then they finally happen, and he's so callous to it that he doesn't even believe it's gonna happen. He throws out the resume of why it can't happen, even though there's an angel in front of his face in the temple. On some level, he has shut those things out of his life, and when it's finally time for it to happen, he's not ready for the process because he's trying to control the script and protect his heart and protect his brain from more and more disappointment, and God is saying, man, you need to get on board with what I'm gonna do. You need to take some time and just be with me. Don't talk to anyone else. I'm gonna shut your mouth for a period of time. You need to get right back with me. 
everything creates dependence. It's either codependence on people, self-reliance or self-dependence on self, or just dependence, which is the answer to the problem. God is giving him the Christmas gift that he needs when he's saying, you've walked with me day after day, week after week, year after year. You need to stay in this moment with me. You need to get really dependent on me right now because I'm about to do something. The answer to this trauma in his life is dependence on God. Dependence is the gift that nobody wants to open because it always comes to the process of waiting. These people love the Lord. He says, I'm gonna choose to block out this noise with the hurt and the struggle, and I'm gonna have to trust in you, God, in this moment. And so God shuts, I think that's why God shuts his mouth. He has this time with the Lord. Last thing is this, we're gonna let the kids come up here and sing. Prayer never falls on deaf ears. How long have they been praying? How long have you been praying? We don't know exactly, right? It could be 50, we don't know. It's a long time. She's praying these things, if she's like a, a normal girl that loves the Lord, she's praying these things for probably a pretty young age. God, give me a family someday. She finds a man of her dreams, he's a pastor. Things are going well. No kid, no kid, no kid. And so they're praying these things, but the, the, the beauty of the gospel is that all of our prayers are answered. They're just not always the answers that we want. And God's not even saying no, he's just saying not yet. And so what I think is important to realize this, and when you, maybe this is your struggle, which is why I bring it up at Christmas season, because like Greg said, Christmas isn't always a beautiful thing for everybody, right? Sometimes it, it just manifests the trauma and disappointments in your life. Holidays have a way of doing that. But they've been praying these things, and they're looking at it from a very narrow and close view. My, my youngest child is 12 years old, and she loves technology that has to be monitored, right? And she'll find something funny with her technology, and it's usually not funny, it's just funny to her, and she won't be here till 11, so I'll give you the truth. It's really unfunny, the stuff that she thinks is funny on, on YouTube. And she'll say, Dad, look at this, and you know what she does? She goes, Dad, look at this, and it drives me crazy. She puts it right in my face. I'm like, honey, I can't see, it's too close to my face. And then I take her hand, I go like this, and I go, that's where I need to see it. And she puts it right back in my face, right? And maybe you've had that happen to you, but I think that's how it works when we get so in tune with what we think has to happen and how the outcome has to be produced in our lives that it's so close to our face that we can't see it the way God sees it because God has this ultimate plan of redemption and he sees things and holistically, with large view in mind and his sovereignty, he sees things from a helicopter view. He sees all the moving parts that we cannot see in our frustration and our angst. We see it right here. God says, take a step back. I'm working my plan, and now the moment has finally arrived, and things are finally manifesting, and the beauty of the story and the narrative is your prayers have been answered, your plan prayers have been answered, in this moment, because now your prayers are aligned with my sovereignty and my will in your life, and you're gonna have a son, and his name's gonna be John. This is good news. John's born, he's the front runner. It's been uh, the plan of God since the beginning, since sin entered the equation. He knew this was gonna happen. John's the front runner, his life's not easy. He ends up dying for the faith himself but he sets the stage, which is where we're going Christmas, 
which is why we've been in faith stories in the Old Testament week after week. He sets the stage for the star of the story, the star search of the story, Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He was born in a manger, his cousin's preparing the way, he baptizes his cousin, he lives a perfect and blameless life, he dies the perfect death that we should have died, he raises from death and he conquers it and he owns it and he gives us this way of salvation and all of the narrative has been crafted from the beginning, and you see milestone after milestone, look at me, after milestone, as God is working his plan for the good. And now that faith is building inside of Zechariah and Elizabeth, and it's manifesting in the physical. And so my question to you as we close this time out is, where is your faith? Are you trusting in those things that you can't even see yet for God to do in your life, even if it might make your life harder? Are you finding angst in the waiting? Is waiting the Christmas gift that you don't ever wanna open? And are you missing this beauty, this beauty of dependence on God in the process of waiting? God is setting up this narrative to set his son up to come and die in your place and rise from death so that you can be made right with God in all of your sin because his wrath and judgment stands over these things. He's providing this way of salvation for the eternal and the here and now, and he's creating in us this dependence this Christmas season on his son, Jesus. I'm gonna pray and the kids are gonna come in. Jesus, we thank you for your timing. We thank you for your will. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. And we give you this time, we give you this moment, this Christmas season, we say, have your way. For all those unmet needs and the trauma that we maybe have been through where we try to control the script, can we enter this Christmas season just saying, the gift that we need from you is complete dependence and trust that your ways are good. We thank you for dying in our place and rising from death so that we can have life. And we pray these things in your name and everybody said, amen.